0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the threat intelligence podcast. Even though many people took some day offs, cyber criminals definitely were active during the last couple of weeks. Today, we talk about two major happenings over the last week, and who could be a better suit for that than my co host Amar Lakhani. Amar, my friend, how are you doing?
1: I am great, Jonas, and it is great to be back. It's been a couple, couple of weeks, it seems like, since the last time we were discussing cybercrime and threat intelligence and all things good in cybersecurity. So I'm happy to be back.
0: I'm very happy to have you here again. And I'm very excited about the topics we covered today because I think they paint a pretty good picture about the current state of cyber, of the cybercrime industry. and. I want to kick things off with, uh, with the news, which probably everyone heard quite a bit already about the solar wind attacks in the past. But before we start, would you mind giving a, a short introduction, um, w- what happened and um, your view on it?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I got to take my hats off to SolarWinds on the transparency that they came out with in helping the cybersecurity community be educated from, uh, from, you know, this incident that happened. Um, That's great because, uh, you know, what... What I was really surprised about and really happy to see is that the entire cybersecurity community uh, came together to really understand the SolarWinds attack, really what happened, try and deconstruct maybe uh, some of the attacks uh, or sub-attacks that were were happening. Now, for anyone that doesn't know what happened, it was um, SolarWinds is a company makes multiple good products, uh, really well-known products. And, uh, you know, one of their one of their tools at least the uh, allegation of the incident is is uh, that got compromised. There was a malicious DLL that got compromised that was making outbound connections, at least in its most basic way. And I'll let you expand a little bit on that uh, on uh, on what happened uh, with that Jonas.
0: Yeah, I think the the most interesting part for me, at least, is the when we look at the timeline, because the topic um, was announced a couple of weeks ago, but it all started much earlier. The As far as the the information I was able to gather, the operation preparation, they started back in August 2019, and the first known version is actually from October 2019. And we were able to see that the infrastructure which was needed to support this whole of um, this whole campaign was set up between August 19 and February 2020. So now, Jonas, quite... I do want to add. Uh, I did want to add that one of the things that I found this
1: really interesting because even on a much smaller scale, anytime I've been involved in any type of incident response or looking at any other types of data breaches, we've always found that there was like usually some precursor to the actual incident, some sort of reconnaissance or some sort of, you know, other type of malware. We've seen this over and over again on major types of breaches that that have made the news cycle, as well as just like just individual types of uh, breach and incident response that we've seen is that uh, attackers are normally doing a very good job staying under the radar, but also discovering the environment and understanding really how to really what the weak points in those environments are. And your point is perfect, is that timeline they're building up. It wasn't all of a sudden the attack happened and one day they actually, they actually were spending some time uh, doing a reconnaissance.
0: Yeah, and it's it's pretty much needed because the more information you gather about certain environments, the the more capabilities you have afterwards. And the same thing happened here that the distribution of the malware via the Orion package, which you mentioned earlier, it already started back in in March 2020. And it took um, a couple of months, even though till September, November, until in in December, the first report was uh, publicly announced and um, some attribution was done. And then everything went uh, pretty quickly. So back in December, there were already. Uh, Good attempts and then successful attempts from um, different companies to take down the infrastructure of of the command and control servers which are needed for the malicious software to communicate back and um, work appropriately. Yes, yeah, so, let, let me ask you something.
1: Uh, so on December, like December, I think six, uh, I think that's when we started, uh, or December thirteenth, I believe, was when we first started seeing the report from the U- U.S. Treasury Department on on what the p- possible attacks could be. We started seeing some reports a little earlier. Uh, you know, things came out that saying like, "Hey, it may be a certain group behind this." You know, like APT twenty nine, Cozy Bear. Some people were saying, "No, it's probably not them. We have to look at uh, things." How does the attribution happen on the back end? How, how do people, and we're, we're guessing here, we weren't involved, right? But, but in general, when you're doing incident response, uh, whether it's this breach or any other breach, how do you actually, uh, you know, take into account that there may be a certain group behind that, right? And uh, why do people say that all the time in the reports? I'm always kind of wondering about that.
0: So first of all, I would like to mention that attribution is something which is not as easy as most people think it is. And I'm always a little bit careful because it's very dangerous to to point the finger on someone who actually wasn't really involved. But um, most people want to know who it was and the techniques for understanding doing this attribution. At, um, findings is that you have a look at certain techniques from the attacker so for example you find certain languages in the, in the software in the malware which they use to exploit kind of uh, these systems you see certain patterns you try to understand from the information you have from the past how were certain attack groups successful of exploiting vulnerabilities and maybe they reuse the same techniques because they have been successful in the past and These sophisticated threat actors, they have a lot of different tools and weapons in their arsenal. And usually they try to avoid using new stuff if they know their old techniques already work. Because these exploits are worth millions on on the darknet. So they're always a little bit careful of, of, of using what they don't really have to. But in the end, they always try to trick as well the public audience. So they might lead some... False, um, part of, of codes in, in, the malware, which, which might lead to a different threat group
1: you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I'm actually really glad that I don't personally have to do attribution because as you mentioned, uh, you know, there's false flags planted everywhere. One group is going to try and make it look like another group did something, right? There's false flags everywhere. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, things like imitation, Uh, you know, if something works, keep on using the same thing or other groups are going to like start copying that as well. And of course, we know like the bad guys probably move around from different groups anyways. So, they're probably taking some of their techniques as well. So, so I am I'm really glad we don't have to like take take part in that attribution. I always try and keep an eye on that, especially in an attack like this. Uh I think um you know we, we know, know about eighteen at least the things I was reading on the internet, about eighteen thousand uh you, you know, people like downloaded or organizations downloaded the malware. Um obviously a small percentage of that we think was actually like breached. There was all these evasion techniques that were used. That's what you know people started thinking about different attack groups behind that because the evasion techniques have kind of been used a little bit in the past. Um, a lot of IOCs came from this.
0: Yes, and I think one point to highlight are the evasion techniques because usually people these days, they before they implement these patches in their environments, they implement it in their test environments. And they try to look for certain patterns which might be suspicious, like, OK, I installed a new patch. Do I see any outgoing connections to any servers, which I'm not expecting? And attackers are pretty much aware about these things and they tried to evade these environments in a way that they don't start doing any connections to any command and control server until like two or three weeks um, after the installation because usually people, they test the new patches for maybe a couple of days, maybe a week if it's very long test and then they apply the patch to the environment. And um, in this time, the patch, the connections are not um, connecting to the command and control servers. So they try to evade these kind of uh, scenarios um, with these techniques.
1: You're absolutely right. Even when you have advanced, uh, you know, breach detection type systems, such as like sandboxes, uh, a lot of attackers will try and wait out the sandbox. I've seen techniques where, you know, they wait a certain time before the malware is activated. Maybe they'll wait a certain amount of packets that they see on the wire, like a million packets on the wire, which they know normally normal networks may take one or two days. Most sandboxes are running for, you know, a few minutes. Now, obviously, it's a cat and mouse game. Sandboxes, a lot of these days, are going to, uh, you know, try and speed up the malware, try and, like, play around with the clock to try and force that malware. So there's evasion and there's anti evasion, which is always a cat and mouse game. And of course, um, you know, the security guys were trying to now, now look at the code blocks and code features. And using things like machine learning and other things to try and get a hand on that. But you're absolutely right. Any sophisticated malware these days is going to have evasion techniques, and the evasion techniques are getting more complicated. Uh, Even when we know what those techniques are, it's still getting, it's still complicated to detect them because the environment can change so many ways.
0: Definitely. And what's also interesting to see just last week, we have seen multiple websites popping up where they try to sell that data, which they gathered from their victims. And what's interesting here is that some of the threat actors try to impersonate the the other threat actors, where they set up a very similar website. They copy paste more or less the same messages, but the, they just exchange their Bitcoin wallet address with the hope that someone really wants to understand what kind of data was stolen and paste these um, yeah extortion fees, so they they can get the money. Where it's um. So, so, cyber criminals try to make money out of uh, other cyber criminals where they were not even involved in in the begin with.
1: Yeah, you know, I've seen that technique used in a variety of different ways. I, I saw actually a technique being used like that when a new cryptocurrency was on sale and people on Twitter said, Oh, if you want to buy this cryptocurrency, we'll trade you, send your bitcoins here, pretending to be the legitimate place. And they were like stealing money. Same thing with this attack you're talking about. They're basically mimicking, uh, another website saying, send your cryptocurrency here and we'll, uh, we'll help you out. Uh, we're seeing these fake websites all over the board in all types of attacks. Um, one of the things just to kind of pivot a little bit, uh, Jonas, uh, when you mentioned this fake website, what I started noticing recently is all these fake websites Promising the COVID vaccine, especially especially in my part of the world, uh, where uh, you know people are signing up and on waiting lists uh, on this COVID vaccine, where everyone's trying to get a hold of it, and there's all these fake fake websites and fake waiting lists where they're collecting information, perhaps trying to scam you out of some money as well, and promising you this idea of uh, fake vaccines.
0: Yeah, indeed. And besides the fake websites, there are also um, some underground darknet markets where they sell um yeah you never know whether it's fake or not but the, allegedly they sell the the vaccine for um 1500 dollars i think for for two shots so they everyone tries to make money out of the, the current situation and it's it's definitely um quite critical because thinking back about um i think half a year ago when we were talking about um, in, in the middle of the pandemic we already seen um, allegedly products which might help to be more secure about the whole Uh, virus being sold on the darknet so this is a similar trend right now where the the mainstream media um, announces that the vaccine rollout is starting so cyber criminals that try to leverage that and make um, make money by themselves with selling it on either fake websites or selling it on uh, darknet markets
1: so you're saying your advice to people would be not to purchase critical medical uh, healthcare treatment through the darknet, correct?
0: <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So obviously, um, these kind, you never know what you buy on darknet markets, and you have uh, no idea what uh, if if anything even arrives. But I think that the point here is that it, it shows again whatever happens in the real world has such a fast and quick impact on on this on the cyber. Um, cyberspace in, in, in the ecosystem where everyone tried to or cr- every cyber criminal tries to make as much money as possible but talking about as much money as possible there was some really interesting news just uh, released last week where one of uh, darknet markets uh, announced that they will shut down by themselves where you tell me oh usually uh, the feds are, are able to take over certain um, darknet markets and that's why darknet markets shut down but this time the owners announced publicly, "Hey, we made enough money. Uh, Bitcoin is rising. We will go into uh, well-deserved retirement um, before getting greedy and, and getting caught at one point." And I think it's a, it's a interesting, it's a very interesting message.
1: Yeah. So just imagine a criminal is saying, "I've done enough. I made enough cash. I am content with uh, what I what I what I've made. I'm content with my criminal activities, and and now I can retire." Um, Just a little bit of background information, we're specifically talking about the darknet market, Joker's Stash. It's no longer around, the site's being taken down, but Joker's Stash was a carding forum. And what we mean by that is a carding forum is a popular term used on the internet on websites that basically deal with credit cards and debit cards and bank account information on, on, on data breaches based on that. A lot of times they're selling pools or lots of credit card information. It was probably one of the largest ones that I've come across in my personal research that's out there. Um, and it was, uh, like I said, it was uh, it was pretty massive. It had a lot of activity and they said, you know what? We're out of it. We make enough fees. It was kind of like a auction. They took a percentage of any any sales and they said, you know what? We've done enough. We've Taking enough fees, we're happy and we're getting out of it, and uh, maybe trying to uh, stay one step ahead uh, from law enforcement. But I uh, saw so that was really interesting when uh, cybercrime is so successful that the criminals are are retiring essentially.
0: And you know what usually happens more when one darknet market goes down. It's not like uh, nothing else happens in the background. Everyone else is fighting for the new for the new top spot, and usually when. One market goes down, three new markets shows up and being competitive towards each other and try to have better features, better services and uh, be the new uh, top guy on, on the market
1: yeah absolutely not only do new markets go up but the old ones get flooded uh so uh with new new users so uh it never goes away uh it seems like the the volume of uh, these attacks and activity is always increasing over time as we've seen year over year you know it's uh, it's uh you know being a slow and steady rise and i don't think that's going to change whether one market goes down or not and i think that's why it's uh it's imperative uh that um you know when we're doing investigations when we're tracking we're not just stopping at like if we see sources from a group of, like a thread actor or a group or a website that may no longer be around we still want to see if there's new stuff coming out if we can attribute things that we didn't know about in the past uh, you know to to a certain uh, IOC indicator of compromise or a website uh, so we want to see you know what the, what the full picture was and we're always trying to gather that and hopefully you know that will give us more more ammo as we say in Texas more ammo to uh, combat uh, you know other Cyber criminal activities or just cyber cyber threats that are out there, uh, even if they're on new sites or uh, new new threat actors.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, I think it's this is a topic which we could speak multiple hours on. It's it's so much to cover, but I think we we touched uh, the most important parts today. And um, once again, thanks, Ammar, for for joining me here and giving your your insight with with your research, what what you're doing. It's, uh, it's, it's highly valued.
1: Always my pleasure, Jonas. Always my pleasure. Thanks again.
0: Thanks again. And to everyone who's listening, stay safe and secure, and we hear you soon.